The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Would you give me a bottle of water? Thank you, Chandler. Thank you, Logan. (coughs) Excuse me. The last sermon in this series on Doubting Christianity, Seven Reasons, Examining Seven Core Reasons for Non-Belief, um, is can a wrathful God be loving? Uh, can is is the idea of hell compatible with the idea of a loving God? <coughs> and it's it's a it's a strong it's a strong topic. Um, I think one of the things. Thank you so much. It raises this question: um, Are love and wrath compatible? And the whole time I was preparing this, I, I just, I, I'm sobered by the whole idea of, of talking about the idea of the wrath of God. Because I know that we live in an era where there's a lot of presumption that we bring to the table about the wrath of God because there's a lot of presumption that we bring to the table about what love is. And it's as though love can never have uh, aggression. Love can never have uh, force of strength. Love, can, can, love has to be uh, just 
completely accepting of anything anybody wants to do. If you love somebody, you will never confront. There's no need for church membership like what we just did because nobody gets to say anything to anybody else except I want you to be happy and I want you to be fulfilled and whatever that takes for you, I just want to come along and support that as you live your journey. But the story of Scripture tells us that's not how it works. That we were made for a relationship with God. St. Augustine said, our, our hearts are restless. Uh, sing along. Some of you know this quote. Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Um, I love that quote because I think it gets to the heart of, this, of the divide between people who embrace biblical Christianity and people who struggle with biblical Christianity is people who struggle with biblical Christianity will look at Christians a lot of times and assume or, th- or think that really at the, the heart of this religion, the heart of this faith, of this practice, is basically largely residing in the area of morality and uh, political and social values. But for a Christian, we'd say, actually, no, the heart of this is about how we were made for a relationship with God, all of us, that was broken and is, and is something we can't redeem and we can't reconcile ourselves because he's holy and because we're not. And so we need a reconciliation to happen on our behalf. And Christ is the one who has done that for us. So we're going to dive into this. It's a little bit of a shorter sermon. Um, But this objection, can a wrathful God be loving, has a few presumptions that are baked into it. Uh, First and foremost is the notion that wrath and love are incompatible. It presumes that wrath, as a response to an abandoned relationship, has no place in genuine love. That wrath is loveless and that love is wrathless. But we don't experience love that way. We don't. We don't. When you are betrayed by somebody that you love, wrath is a part of that because it's connected to it. We don't experience love in this way. I've sat in so many living rooms where infidelity has been discovered and one spouse has made the, or one spouse has made the decision to just leave a marriage And in those meetings, love and wrath are colliding with each other. And they're colliding with each other. They're both present because each is present because the other is. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Parent children. And you will have moments when this person that you love and are in the active process of laying down your life for them will do something or decide something or make a choice. And they will experience full measure of your wrath in a moment that will leave them spinning if you're anything like this particular parent. Some of you may be like, I'm just cool-headed all the time. My kids never see me break. It's just this steady march in the same direction of consistency and affirmation. (laughs) There are times when the response of love is a heavy hand is correction, is strong intervention. And it's not because you've gone from loving to despising. 
It's because your love is kicking into a gear for the purpose of redeeming, rescuing, helping, preserving, protecting. It's because of the love that it's happening. Rebecca Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, which is an amazing book. If you've never read this book, uh, Rebecca Manley Pippert, her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, she says this. Um, it's a book that's just quotable from beginning to end, but she says this. Think how we feel when we, see some, when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. In seminary, I wrote a paper about uh, depictions of afterlife in film. Uh, so I had this class on the afterlife, and we had to pick a paper to, subject to write about. And so I love movies, so I thought, I'm going to write about how the afterlife is depicted in major Hollywood movies. And here's one of the things that I noticed, is that filmmakers would often try to capture the idea of heaven as this ethereal place of light, right? It was just kind of like San Diego, only better, Right? <laughs> And it was this place of ethereal light and comfort and peace and everybody was just happy and, and at rest and the sun was shining. And then, and then hell was usually this, this, this place that was straight from a horror movie. It was dark and it was craggy and it was smoldering and you could almost smell the sulfur from the screen and it was filled with eternal misery. But one of the details that is conspicuously missing in movies depicting the afterlife, is God. He's not in the places. It's just a place. It's a place you go. There's a good place, there's a bad place. And it's as though God, if he's even in the mix at all in the storytelling, he's in a completely different place altogether if he's in the mix in any way. And when our ideas about afterlife don't include God, then they're just places. There's a good place and there's a bad place and there's a vindictive decider who puts some people he likes in a good place and other people that he doesn't like in a bad place. And in one of them, the amenities are wonderful. And in the other, they're just terrible. But when scripture talks about the life to come, you know what it focuses on? The presence or the absence of God. It doesn't focus on a place. It focuses on the presence or the absence of God more than any feature of a place. When Revelation talks about the new heavens and the new earth, this city, this new Jerusalem, there's this language that there will be no more sun to shine on it because the glory of God gives it light. But it's the presence of God. So, so as people who are thinking about the afterlife and hell and wrath and heaven and what comes after we die, if we're thinking about it merely in terms of places we deserve to go, and that's really what it's all about is just a place, we've missed the biblical narrative. Because the biblical story is telling us, listen, God's call on the lives of his people 
is not to a place, it's to himself. God's call on the lives of his people is to himself. I can't tell you how many times I've made that statement in sermons over the years. It feels to me like a crystallization of so much of what the story of Scripture is about. God's call on the lives of his people is to himself. In the Christian scriptures, the life to come is about God's presence, a reunion between the maker and his image bearers. Hell, then, is separation from God, depicted as a fire in scripture because what does fire do? It disintegrates. So when many people think of hell, they think of it as there's this trap door. I didn't know I was standing on it. Maybe a deep dive would be, remember Return of the Jedi when Luke Skywalker is standing in front of Jabba the Hutt and the trap door opens and he didn't know he was standing on it. That's kind of like how hell works. The trap door just opens and you fall down. You're taken completely by surprise. This kind of thinking supports this cinematic depiction of a life to come as being nothing more than just two places, one for good people and one for bad people. But from the beginning of the Bible to the end, the single thread that runs through Genesis, the Exodus, the times of the judges and the kings and the prophets, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and the formation of the early church, the thread that runs through all of that is that human beings were created for intimate relationship with their maker. We're made for that. We're driven by that. St. Augustine said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. They were driven by this need to be reconciled to our maker. Above all else, we were made to know and love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's not arbitrary that Jesus would say the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like he was just picking one and said, I think that's God's favorite. No, it's because that's what you were made for. You were made for this. Any attempt to comprehend the life to come, apart from this fact, is just going to fall apart. It's going to end up being about a place. We will reduce the afterlife to a place without a sense of the presence of God. And when we've done that, we've missed the point. And from that false starting place then, we're going to start objecting to the idea that God would send some to the bad place and he would send some to the good place as though the place is what it's ultimately about and God is just arbitrarily deciding based on how he feels. When Christians talk about the life to come, they're talking about proximity to God, not to a place. They're talking about being known, restored, made whole, as opposed to inheriting the consequences of choosing a life lived apart from him. You follow me on that? That we're made for a relationship with God and hell is the consummation of a life choosing separation from God in the first place. We look at this passage, the rich man and Lazarus from Luke. This is a parable Jesus told. So this story is, is a story that came from the lips of Jesus uh, to his disciples during his earthly ministry. It's a parable that he told. 
And I want to look at it and tease it out just a little bit. Jesus is a master storyteller. The way that he weaves details in, the way that he uses them, the way that he withholds certain details all add uh, to the complexity and the significance of this. And this is a parable that's well worth your time beyond the few minutes that we're going to spend on it here because uh, there's a lot to mine in it. But I want to pull out some significant details. The first is that it's a parable about two people. And one we know only as the rich man. And the other one has a name. Lazarus. In this life, the rich man passes the poor man at his gate every day. And the poor man has to be carried there. He's covered in sores. He's helpless. He's homeless. He's hungry. And all he wants is to eat scraps from the rich man's table. And to the rich man, Lazarus is nothing to him. He's just a part of the fixture of the entryway to his opulence. And then they both die. And the rich man goes to hell and everything that he's trusted in has been consumed and he is alone and yet he's still thinking like a rich man. To the point that when he sees or knows about Lazarus. So what's happened now is, is the poor man is going by his actual name. He's known to Abraham as Lazarus. That's who he is to Abraham. That's who he is to God. That's who he is to Jesus. The rich man, notice he doesn't want to leave where he is and go be with Lazarus. That's not the path he chose. That's not the life he's living. What does he want? He wants Lazarus to bring him some water. He wants the poor man to serve him when he's in hell. He doesn't want to leave it. He just wants a little help. He wants Lazarus to be his, his, his water boy, to bring a little comfort his way. And Abraham's the one to speak, not Lazarus. I love the beauty of this. This isn't Lazarus's problem. <laughs> This is now between Abraham and the rich man who still is without a name because all he really is is a rich man. And Abraham's the one to speak and he tells the rich man in hell, there is a great chasm that cannot be spanned between where Lazarus is and where you are. It's been fixed and there's two realms and so the rich man pleads, if that's the case, then would you, would you please send someone from your realm to warn my living relatives? What's fascinating about that is, again, he's behaving like a rich man. And when I say rich man, I mean it in the worst possible sense of the word, right? In somebody who is, who is consumed with the love of money, whose identity is folded into that and is looking at money as a, sal as a, sal as a savior and is trusted in it to be his identity and his worth and his justification for existence. And he's finding out, oh no, it didn't work that way. And so what he's doing is here, he's saying, okay, to Abraham, would you send a representative with someone, anyone, to go and warn people about this place. As though that's never happened. 
And what's fascinating about that and chilling about that is Abraham's response is, listen, if they haven't already listened to Scripture, and we would add now, in hindsight, if they've not listened to the risen Christ himself, they're not going to hear if we keep sending other messengers. Even in hell, the rich man has no use for God. He's not interested in God here. He just wants his relatives to get to the good place where there's water. And all the while, Lazarus still means nothing to him outside of Lazarus possibly serving him in some way. I love the way Jesus constructs this parable because it really takes the culpability away from God being temperamental and says, actually, the afterlife is, 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 an, is an extended expression of the life that you choose here. All of this, he suggests to Abraham that God didn't supply enough information for him to know. And it's this self-centered, other-devaluing, blame-shifting life of personal comfort. That's the hell this man chose long before he died. That I will be defined by what separates me, by what gives me a leg up on other people. I will be known by what I have, not by who I am. You will know me for my wealth, not for my name. Romans 1.24, Paul says of this trajectory of a life, God gives us up to evil desires. Tim Keller said this, he said, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to infinity. We were made to love God. If you're listening to this and you don't have a relationship with God, one of the things that I'm saying universally for all people is you were made to love God. And there will be a vacuum in your life if that's not the case for you. And you will try to fill it with other things. You'll try to fill it with other things that give you a sense of identity that you can look at and point to and say, that, that is the thing that justifies my existence. But it won't. It won't fulfill you. It will fail. And I'm not guessing at that. It's a story as old as time. Over and over again, the story is told. God's judgment is not based on how good one person is compared to another. He doesn't look at two people in the room and say, I like you better than you because that first person, you're a little bit better than this other person. We're made for a relationship with God. God's judgment is based on who we are to him. Are we in a relationship with him or are we not in a relationship with him? Have we embraced a relationship with him through Christ or have we rejected a relationship with him and chose to live as though he doesn't exist? And the life to come is about place, not relationship. 
We're made for a relationship with our creator. Before anything else, we were created for him, to love him, to worship him, to find our identity and peace in him. And it's not arbitrary. It's what we're made for. And apart from him, we're adrift in the cosmos. Why? Because what we're really seeking is autonomy from God. If we're not seeking a relationship with him, we're seeking to be free of him. To do for ourselves what only God can do. And that is to make sense of our lives. When our faith is in Christ, we embrace then the restoration of the relationship we were created for since the foundation of the world and we are restored. So this is the call of Christianity. To turn to God through faith in Christ not so that we go to the good place when we die, but because God's call in the lives of his people is to himself, is to this relational peace. C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, Type this wrong. Let me see. Okay, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, uh, those who say thy will be done to God and those to whom God in the end says thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously, constantly desires joy will ever miss it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss joy. We're made for a relationship with God, all of us. And the call of the gospel is to that, above everything else. It's not a call to a good place. It's not even a call to good behavior, even though there is a Christian ethic, right? It's not a call to good behavior. God's call in the lives of his people is to himself. And the beauty of this story in Scripture is that Jesus is the one telling us this. And one of the things we get in this story is he knows our name. We're more than our achievements. We're more than our wealth. We're more than how we rank according to other people. He knows our name and also he absorbs the wrath of God himself for our rebellion against God in order to reconcile us to our maker. And No one else has done that for you or can. So he knows our name and I pray that then we will then know and call on his. Let me pray. Lord.